Well, good morning, Arendale Bible Chapel. It's great to be back with you. I was with you not that long ago. Does anyone remember? I think it was January, maybe February of last year. So pre-COVID, pre-shutdown, a lot of water has passed under the bridge since then. But it is indeed good to be back among you. Let's continue to worship by taking God's word and turning back again to Paul's epistle to the Philippians. Paul's epistle to the Philippians. Off the northeast shore of Scotland, there is a tidal island called Bell Rock. And in the late 1700s, by the late 1700s, this tidal island was responsible for, on average, six shipwrecks um, per year. So a tidal island, this rock jutting from the sea for maybe half the day while the tide was out. It was visible. You can see it. And then when the tide comes rushing in for the remainder of the day, the rock, of course, is hidden from view and just lurking two or three feet below the surface of the sea. And so responsible, yeah, annually, on average, six shipwrecks. So by the late 1700s, the British government got their act together and decided it would be a good idea to put a lighthouse on, that, uh, on Bell Rock. And it's quite the feat of engineering because they could only work during the summer months. They could only work for a few hours a day while the tide was out. It took them seven or eight years to build the thing. Still standing today. Over 200 years later, this lighthouse on Bell Rock, there's only been one shipwreck ever since. I think it was during the First World War because of the blackouts. The light wasn't shining, but there that lighthouse stands still today. Over 200 years later, this beacon of light directing the way to those ships passing in the night. The Bible is just like that, is it not? Uh, the psalmist declares, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my way. Genesis to Revelation, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my way. This book is a directing light, isn't it? It leads us in the paths we ought to take. It's an illuminating light. It penetrates the darkness and reveals that which is hidden. It's a quickening light. It invigorates. It imparts spiritual life and vitality, doesn't it? And it is a comforting light. It brings peace to the soul. It brings a peace which passes all understanding. And so that's our great ambition as we turn to God's word this morning. As we turn to Philippians chapter 4, we want the cry of the psalmist ringing in our ears. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. And we so desperately want God's word to illumine our way. That's going to be our ambition today as we turn to Philippians chapter 4. This is going to be our text. I'm back with you next week. This isn't a one-off. I'll be back next week, 
And then I'm back again, Lord willing, on the 29th, I think it is, the last Sunday of the month. And so this text in Philippians is going to be with us these three Sundays, and we're going to turn to it on these three occasions, seeking to shine the light of God's Word upon our souls. And so follow along now as I read the first 13 verses of Philippians chapter 4. Paul writes, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I have learned, in whatever situation I am to be content, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So that's our text for today, next Lord's Day, and August the 29th, Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And all we're going to do today, very limited in scope, we'll get to the rest of the text, Lord willing, as we move ahead. All we're going to do today is hone in, narrow our focus to three little phrases, three little phrases packed away in these verses as we seek God's word to illumine our way. The first phrase is this. It's found in verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. That's phrase number one. The God of peace. This title is used in reference to our God to describe our Lord seven times in the New Testament. The God of peace. It describes God as he stands in relation to his people. To really understand it, 
to really appreciate it, we need to be clear on four truths. Let me give them to you just by way of four statements straight out of Scripture. Here's the first. The first truth, the first statement, we need to be very clear on these four if we want to really get what this means. The God of peace as he stands in relation to his people. The first phrase as follows, straight out of Romans chapter 3, verse 10. No one does good. No, not one. That's the starting point. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul says a little more than that in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. He actually declares, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good. No, not one. There the Apostle Paul, he's not mincing words, isn't he? He's just cutting straight to the chase. And he is articulating for us in no uncertain terms the human predicament. That as we stand, you and I, before a holy God, as far as this God is concerned, no one does good. No, not one. We have a problem. The problem is known as, known as sin. And this problem, sin, we can simply define and understand as follows. We are riddled with self-love. I heard a preacher declare it years ago. I nearly choked on it when I heard it, but I've become convinced of it ever since. We are by nature selfaholics. We are lovers of self. And this love of self corrupts all that we do, all that we say, all that we think. And so you imagine that river, and there you are standing by the banks of that river, that stream. And a mile or two upstream, there's some chemical factory. And they are dumping their waste toxins into the water, and it disperses in the water, in the stream, in that river. And you look down at that stream, and it looks clean, and it smells all right, and it tastes all right. But it's not all right. It is what? It is polluted. This is the human predicament. This is the condition of the human heart. We are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. We do not do that. Riddled with self-love, that principle of self-love, therefore corrupting every thought, every word, every deed. And therefore, the Apostle Paul can declare unapologetically, unequivocally, there is none who does good. No, not one. Here's the second statement. It's also out of Romans. Chapter 2, verse 16, I think it is. The Apostle Paul there declares that there is a day of judgment coming. And here is one of the most frightening, terrifying statements in all of Scripture. There is an appointed day of judgment when an all-knowing, all-seeing God will judge the secrets of men. You don't find that terrifying? Want to share your secrets with me this morning? I don't want to particularly hear your secrets this morning, and I don't think you want to hear mine. Someday they will be put on display, and God himself will weigh them in the balance. And you and I, my friend, we will be found sorely wanting, sorely lacking, 
as every secret impulse, every secret inclination, every secret thought, all that has remained hidden from view throughout our lives, laid bare before our judge and maker. Here is the third phrase that we need to be very clear on. It comes out of Romans chapter 3, and it is this, that God has displayed publicly his son as a propitiation by his blood. Are you seeing how these build? You go back to the very first one. There is none good, no, not one. We have a problem. It's called sin. That problem is compounded by the second statement, that there is an appointed day when God will judge the secrets of men. But now we start to hear something of the good news, that God himself has displayed publicly, put forth publicly, his son as a propitiation by his blood. Meaning what? That the Lord Jesus Christ, as he hung upon Calvary's cross, naked, suspended between heaven and earth, became sin for you and me. Became a curse for you and me. And bore that judgment in full, that judgment which we rightfully deserved because of our sin, our sin against a holy and good God. And now here's the fourth statement. It gets even better. Here we go, the fourth statement. Right out of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. What does Paul celebrate there? There is now what? There is now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Meaning what? For those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus. For those who have looked away from themselves. Fixed their gaze upon Christ and his finished work. And put their hope in him, their hope for salvation in him and in him alone. There is now no condemnation. There is now no punishment. There is now no judgment. Why? What do we enjoy? Peace with God. God becomes the God of peace. As he stands in relation to his people. His people as we stand in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, the hymn writer put it so well. There is no condemnation. There is no hell for me. The torment and the fire my eyes shall never see. For me, there is no sentence. For me, death has no sting. Because the Lord who loves me shall shield me with his wings. He is the God of peace. Do you need to hear that this morning? Maybe I'm just preaching to one and I will just preach to the one. Maybe somebody watching at home for all I know. Just preaching to the one. Do you need to hear that? Do you need to hear and come to grips with who and what you are before a holy God? There is none good, no, not one. Do you need to hear and be overwhelmed in shock and awe by this realization that a day of judgment is coming. And you need to hear that there is a glorious Savior whose work is more than sufficient to atone for sin. His name is Jesus Christ. And you need to hear God himself declare by means of his word, those who, if any man confesses with his mouth, Jesus is Lord. 
and believes in his heart that God raised him from the dead, he shall be saved. Just the one, just the one. Friend, maybe you need to hear this. God is more willing to pardon than punish. He is more willing to pardon than punish. Uh, you think of the story of the prodigal son, that parable. Do you remember that one? And there are some beautiful lesson, lessons in that parable. But I think one of the most striking, heartwarming, encouraging is near the end. When that uh, younger son, who earlier went to his father, and basically reading between the lines, said to his father, look, old man, you're living too long. Can we hurry things along here? I want what's mine. Give me my inheritance. And his father hands it over to him. And off that rebellious, thankless, no good, you fill in the blank, off he goes and lives that degenerate life, wasting it all, finally comes to his senses as he's there languishing in the muck and the mire and the pigsty and decides, I'll return home. And he makes his way for home. And as he draws near, as his figure appears on the horizon, his father is watching. And his father sees him afar off. And what is his father's response? Well, I'm just going to sit here and wait for that young man to get closer. And then I'm going to browbeat him. And I'm going to come up with a list of a hundred things he better do if he thinks I'm ever going to look kindly on him again. What is the father's response? As soon as he sees him coming, before the young man even utters a word, what is the father's response? He runs to him and he embraces that young man. He embraces his son. Oh, God is far more willing to pardon than to punish. Oh, when we come to this God, and we simply echo the cry of David centuries ago, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Or we come to this God with that cry of the publican, the tax collector, that sinner from all those years ago. Have mercy on me. Oh, how a loving God responds to that cry, making us one with his son, Jesus Christ. And because we are one with his son, Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation for us because Christ swallowed it whole upon Calvary's cross. And now this God becomes a God of peace, the God of peace. The God of reconciliation, because we now stand before him in his son, Jesus Christ. That's the first little phrase I want us to notice in this text. The second little phrase is this. It's found in verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So did you catch that? In verse 9, it is the God of peace. But here in verse 7, right at the outset, what do we read of? The peace of God. The peace of God is an eternal calm that lies deep within the trusting soul. It is an eternal 
calm that lies deep within the trusting soul. You know, you think come September, October, those hurricanes, they're going to form over the Atlantic Ocean, right? Thankfully, we're too far north for those things, but um, I lived down in Texas for 10 years. And every August, September, October, you just kind of, you're watching the news, just waiting for it. And these hurricanes form over the Atlantic, and sometimes they'll hit Florida, right? Or they'll enter into the Gulf of Mexico and make landfall on the Texas coast and the devastation, unbelievable. And if you think, you think of those hurricanes as they come hurling across the ocean and the ferocity of those winds, gale force winds, and those mountainous waves. You want to hear something fascinating? Absolutely. It boggles the mind. If you were in the middle of one of those hurricanes and you simply entered into the water and just went down maybe five or six feet, you know it's completely still? Despite this storm raging above and these waves hurling here and there, as soon as you get down just a little ways below the surface, it is perfectly still, perfectly calm. Oh, this is the peace of God. The peace of God and eternal calm that lies deep within the trusting soul. The peace of God rests on two truths. It is this simple. The peace of God rests, let me rephrase it, on our appropriation of two truths. The first is this, sonship. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4, isn't it, that when the fullness of time had come, right? When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, the incarnation, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And then he adds, because we are sons, the Father has sent the Spirit of His Son, into our hearts, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You see, salvation from sin and judgment is only one side of the coin. That's actually the negative side. There's a positive side, and it's glorious. It's not just about what we're saved from. It's what we're saved to. That the Creator of the cosmos receives us as sons, adopted children, into his family, and as the Prince of Preachers put it so eloquently centuries ago, Charles Spurgeon, this means that your heavenly Father now fixes his gaze upon you as if there were no one else in the world. Do you believe that? Sonship. What it means to be a favored child of God. He knows all about us. He is intimately acquainted with every facet of our lives. Every pain. Every struggle. Every anxiety. Every burden. And he fixes his gaze upon us. And he declares, we are the apple of his eye. He has made us one with His Son, Jesus Christ. And yes, because of that union, 
Condemnation is gone. And we are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Christ, But equally glorious. Because of that union. The love with which the Father loves the Son. Is now the love with which the Father loves you and me. His children. It is an unalterable. Unchangeable. Unwavering love. Oh the reality of sonship. And the second truth. The second truth that we must grasp, if we really want to know and enjoy this peace of God, which passes understanding, if we want to know what it means to enter into this experience, this eternal calm that lies deep within the trusting soul, we need to be very clear on God's providence. We need to be very clear on this glorious truth that our Father, as Paul celebrates at the end of Romans chapter 11, Our Father controls all things. Paul says, his own words, all things are from Him and through Him and to Him. You can look it up. It's Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Three prepositions. You didn't think you were getting an English lesson this morning, but here it is. Three prepositions in that verse. They're beautiful little prepositions. All things are from Him. Meaning what? He's the source, origin, Of absolutely everything. All things are through him. Meaning what? He is the principle of cohesion. That holds the entire universe together. And all things are for him. Meaning what? This universe is simply the stage. Upon which he has chosen. To display his eternal glory. All things are from him. All things are through him. All things are to him. Complete Sovereignty. There is, Paul writes to Timothy, one only blessed sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see, and he is our Father. This means he governs all things with the eternal interest of his people in view. Before him at all times. We may not always understand his ways. As a matter of fact, right there in Romans chapter 11, Paul makes that abundantly clear. He tells us God's ways ultimately are inscrutable, unfathomable. But we can have this absolute assurance as we read in Psalm 18 verse 30. That God's ways with his people are perfect. His providential dealings with you. As a child of God. His providential dealings with me. As a child of God. Are absolutely perfect. Do you believe that? Let me put you through a little quiz. Put you through a little quiz. God's ways. With Job. Job. Was perfect. Do you believe that? Even when he sat there lamenting the loss of family, scraping the boils from his flesh. Really. God's way with Joseph was perfect. Even when he was unjustly accused, unjustly imprisoned, and languished in a dark prison cell. God's way with Naomi was perfect. Even as she stood beside the graves 
of her husband and two sons. God's way with David was perfect, even when he snuck out the back door of Jerusalem, fleeing from his son, lust, you know, lustful for power, his son Absalom, accompanied by his invading army. Well, God's way with Jonathan was perfect, even when he was overlooked in favor of David. And Jonathan stayed loyal to his lunatic father and died that lonely death at the edge of a Philistine sword on that lonely hill. God's ways with his people are perfect. Why? Because God does not have our immediate temporal happiness in view. He has our spiritual, eternal happiness in view. And we are being kept secure by the power of God through faith, not for a happy, clappy life, but for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. And this father promises that until that day, whatever we go through, you can be certain that all things work together for good and eternal good for those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose. Sonship and particular providence until we embrace them, own them, and celebrate them we will never know the peace of God. The peace of God stands upon those two unwavering, unassailable biblical truths. We are adopted as children into the family of God. And God governs all things for the good of his children. And although at times they are inscrutable, and at times they are unbelievably painful, we have this certainty that in the end, it is all for our good, our conformity. As the Apostle Paul explicitly states it there in Romans 8, our conformity to the likeness of God's beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Do you need to hear that today? I need to hear that just about every day. That's a tough, tough lesson. We'll be learning that lesson the rest of our lives. Difficulty, I mean, difficulty upon difficulty. Perhaps you've read John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. I won't ask for a show of hands. If you haven't, you should pick it up sometime. Read John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. And in that famous book penned in the 1600s, John Bunyan is just describing by way of spiritual allegory the journey of this individual named Pilgrim from the city of destruction to the heavenly city, the celestial city. And all the adventures and mishaps and problems and high points and low points that he experiences along the way. And there he is. He must stay on the narrow path. He's entered through the narrow way, the doors of salvation. And now must walk this narrow path. And soon on his journey to the celestial city, as he's walking along, there rising right in front of him, this hill, appropriately named enough, difficulty. There it is. And John Bunyan, in that spiritual allegory, he's simply pastorally trying to convey one truth, one truth we better come to grips with and not deny, and it is this, the Christian journey is full of difficulties. You know, he learned that somewhere. You know where he learned it? Lord Jesus, in John 16, verse 33, what did he promise us? In this world, you're going to have good times. In this world, you will have tribulation. 
This world has fallen. And we live under the effects of the curse. We feel it every day, don't we? And we see it all around us. In this life, you will have difficulties. In this life, there will be burdens to bear, crosses to pick up and carry. In this, in this life, there won't just be one hill named difficulty. There may very well be a series of hills. Oh, but this glorious truth, as Paul celebrates in Romans 16, I can't remember, it's towards the end somewhere, he says, now may the God of peace, isn't it the God of peace or the God of hope, perhaps? I can't remember what description he uses there. I think it's the God of peace, appropriately enough. Now may the God of peace strengthen you. Strengthen you. According to the preaching of my gospel. Strengthen me how? By making those two truths come alive. What it means to be a child of God. And what it means to have this absolute certainty. That God rules over all. And God is working all things together for my good. Oh, to know the peace of God. Which surpasses all understanding. Now here's the third phrase. It takes us all the way back up into verse 2. And it's simply this. Agree in the Lord. Look at what we read there. I entreat. And don't ask me if I'm saying these names correctly. I don't know, but uh, my guess is as good as yours. I entreat Yodia. And I entreat Syntyche. To what? To agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion. He's writing... He's writing to the church there, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. So Paul knows these two women, Yodia and Syntyche. He planted this church. For all we know, they may very well have been among his first converts. And they've labored with me side by side in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. They're believers. They're Christians. They're followers of Christ. But they've got a problem. And the problem is this, they're not getting along. We don't know the, the circumstances, the particular circumstances. We don't know what's given rise to this conflict. As a matter of fact, check that. We do know what's given rise to this conflict. James tells us in James chapter 4, isn't it? James asks the questions, what is the cause of quarrels and fighting among you? What is it? There is only one cause of quarreling and fighting and bickering. And there, James, in no uncertain terms, identifies it for us as selfish ambition. That where selfish ambition, where self reigns supreme, there will be quarreling. That's true in the home. It's true in the marriage. It's true in the church. That where self has not died, where self is exalted, and where self reigns supreme, there will always be fights and quarrels. And so Paul, he entreats these two, Yodia and Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Oh, this selfish ambition, it always bears three distinguishing marks. It's always angry, isn't it? Easily agitated and provoked. It's always moody, irritable. And resentful. It's always touchy. Like a bone out of joint. And this selfish ambition always employs three distinguishing tactics. It's expressions. Smirking. Snarling. 
rolling the eyes, shaking the head. In its actions, it employs intimidation, an angry outburst, or isolation, coldness, and aloofness, where it employs words, words that are harsh, dismissive, sarcastic, and negative. Agree in the Lord. What has that command got to do with the God of peace and the peace of God? Oh, come on, build the bridge yourself. Can you build it yourself? We will never agree in the Lord until the God of peace reigns supreme in our lives and we live daily in the enjoyment of the peace of God. It is only a self-die. It is only as we mortify self-love, self-exaltation, me. It is only as we die. And as the Lord Jesus commanded us to do, to deny self, to take up our cross and to follow Him, that there will be peace. There will be harmony. There will be agreement in the Lord. Now, Paul does tell us, I think I probably need to insert this so there's no misunderstanding. He does tell us in Romans chapter 12, insofar as it depends on you. Insofar as it depends on you, live at peace, harmoniously with all people. At times, it's beyond our control, isn't it? It takes two. Beyond times, circumstances, unfortunately, are beyond our reach. But that which is within our sphere of influence... That which does depend upon us. Oh, how we are to earnestly preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that can only be done when the God of peace himself reigns in our hearts whereby selfish ambition melts before him. Whereby the words of that old hymn begin to ring true. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by His love and power controlling all I do and say. May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea. Him exalting, self abasing. Oh, this is victory. Agree in the Lord. Did you get the three phrases? What was number one? The God of peace. You're clear on that. What was number two? The peace of God. Number three, agree in the Lord. We have but scratched the surface of this beautiful text. But there we have great encouragement for the soul, do we not? The God of peace, the peace of God. And there we have a great challenge, do we not? That the God of peace is not some speculative, abstract notion. It is something that is to take root in the soul and affect, influence, and impact our relationships with all, all around us. And my friends, when the God's word becomes active and real and lively in our lives in that way, then truly we can celebrate with the psalmist, your word is a lamp to my feet. It is a light to my path. Our Heavenly Father, that is our simple prayer this day, that you might take your truth as revealed in your word and by your spirit implant it deep within our hearts. May we not be mere hearers of the word, but doers also. 
And may this be for the good of your people and the glory of your name. We commend these requests to you, again, praising you and thanking you in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ.